Journos, a stream of consciousness news podcast with Stephen Jackson and Brandon R. Reynolds. Yeah, there's always there's always going to be latency issues. I think it's I think for them it's easier because it's math. Yeah. Whereas we're dealing with higher concepts. Yeah. What do things mean? And that you know that creates a lot of static that we you and me yeah have to suss through. Right? Yeah, I think if there's one thing we do here, it's suss through the static. We're big sussers. And we're mm-hmm. we're very so. anti-latency. Love immediacy. Hate latency we call it hatency hate oh steven who are you my name's steven jackson oh awesome yeah my name's brandon r reynolds yeah therefore this is journos this is journos a show about endings middles and some beginnings Mm -hmm. that's everything steven today we are going to talk about endings and particularly a kind of ending that is a great source of frustration to many of us in the modern era love hate it spoiler we're going to do spoilers today Not just spoilers for film. In fact, not spoilers for film at all, but sort of more existential spoilers. Spoilers that occur in life. Yeah. uh, And that can mean spoilers that uh, do exist in culture and bubble up where you least expect them and are extremely frustrating in your daily life as you're just trying to, I don't know, play a fun communal cult-like word game. Or if you live in a country that chops off the ending of all of your favorite movies and attaches a different ending that kind of sucks. Yep. Sometimes one bad apple, what does it do? Spoils the movie. Spoil. <laughs> I, I just started playing Wordle yesterday. Welcome to the only thing that's happening in America. If you look at Twitter, <laughs> that's all that's going on. If you don't, if you haven't posted your little your little grid, then you're you're making a joke about the grid. I mean, you as an American citizen. I, I didn't post, but I, yeah, I'm doing the Wordle. It's fine. I mean, it's it's great. It's it's easy. It's nice. It's comforting. Yeah. Okay, well, tell me. I I feel like you got something for me. What what's happening? Perhaps not surprisingly, uh, somebody designed a bot on Twitter that when you post your grid, it will post supposedly the answer to next day's puzzle. Right. So all of the words are programmed and there's a way to reverse engineer and figure out what the word for the next day is Mm because it's all stored in your browser in some way. So somebody's figured out how to hack that. There was a Washington Post story that said, you know, this happened to somebody. And I think literally it happened to one person in the story. So is this an epidemic of uh, bots, you know, crawling across Twitter and and, and blowing up people's games? I don't know, but it's an interesting story. And it certainly seems in line with what people like to do on Twitter. Which is ruin other people's days. To spoil the game for somebody, put it out there. Yeah, there was one woman on Twitter who tweeted and and essentially said that her faith in humanity had been restored because everyone respected the social contract of not ruining Wordle. Yeah. It only takes one person. Bring it all down. It only takes one bad apple to... Ruin the ending. To spoil the bunch. Of the movie. To to ruin the ending of the movie. Yeah, I I think... I was trying to figure out what's the appeal of this thing when you have... Like other games, you know, you have crossword puzzles already that exist and you yeah. have, you know, the spelling bee, which is, I mean, you have to subscribe to the New York Times for or these wor- things. Words with friends. Words with friends, yeah. exactly. And you know what I think it made me realize, like, what the appeal is, is that it forces you into a different cognitive frame yeah. in a s- small way. Like, you have to think about relationships of shapes and letters and you kind of pull from these different things in a way that reminds me 
weirdly of um, trying to, this may seem like a very strange connection, I, but I, I can't it's, wait. Go on. It's what I came up with. Um, in, in the way that I imagine like a neurotypical person trying to imagine what it's like to be neurodiverse, to be yeah. autistic, right? Okay. So I have an autistic brother and, you know, one of the subtexts of my life is like, how does he think about things and how does he feel about things and how do you, you know, put yourself into that space? And a lot of it is like, well, we're sort of have to, you know, uh, conform to the kinds of needs that he has. And that's really interesting. One of his favorite things to do is to watch traffic. Mm-hmm. Right? He, he likes to go to I-10. He likes to go to 1604. Those are two highways in San Antonio. So, you know, he's got a couple favorite spots. He likes to sit outside the AT&T store on I-10 or um, outside of the Italian place called Scoozies, but that they all call Scuzzies uh, on 1604. Watch traffic, a lot of 18-wheelers, a lot of whatever. And so the tradition is that one of my parents, my dad or my mom, will take him on a weekend to go watch traffic. And usually they'll, you know, bring an iPad and read the news and he'll sit there and watch traffic for a while. Um, But... You know, and I'll do it when I'm visiting. But every now and again, you just sort of put your device down and you watch traffic also. And sometimes there is this transcendent experience where you get it. You're like, I see this. Mm -hmm. I understand why it's peaceful, why it's meditative, why it's calming. So you can sort of get into that space if you allow yourself to do it. It makes you think differently in a way. Like it makes the whole architecture of your mind sort of feel different look different um and that's what i think of when i think of why wordle's appealing interesting i love that i i really like that i think last time over the holidays you and i talked on the phone during uh one of these uh sessions with with your brother traffic watching sessions that's right we did yeah mm-hmm. yeah well yeah that actually does make a lot of sense because if it does let's say it puts your your mind into this new sort of rhythm and you have this new sort of cadence of thinking that is like working in this type of puzzle right so it makes sense that people would get really really mad if the rhythm was suddenly violently interrupted i experienced the rage of um receiving a spoiler this week as well a wordle no but a puzzle a game of wit somebody ruined the ending of a duel no not well there's three contestants aaron burr aaron burr (laughs) it's not the milk commercial so i've been following jeopardy maybe you heard of it there's been uh, a woman a trans woman named amy schneider uh has been on the show just dominating for uh several months now um made about $1.3 million, um, historic for many different reasons. Anyways, I'm on a text chain with all my friends, and one of my buddies texted that the person lost. And I was like, God damn it. Because I knew it was going to happen, because I've been following this so closely. And I was really hoping to not uh, have that happen. And when it did, um, yeah, I was like, God damn it. I felt a little cheated. So then I did something that I'm not particularly proud of. I was so mad that I needed to bring someone down with me. So, uh, yeah. And so uh, my wife, Laura, and I have been watching Jeopardy religiously for the past, like, two months following this person. And I then spoiled it for her, too. Oh. (laughs) That's the worst. It was so bad. We laughed about it. But now she can get me back because um, I'm watching Mad Men for the first time, mm-hmm. you know, and 
anybody could ruin my day at any point in time armed with that knowledge. No reasonable person would be protecting me from any Mad Men spoilers in 2022. Right. There is certainly a cutoff, and I don't know what it is, if it's like months, weeks, like within the zeitgeist, there, there's a bubble of, again, the social contract yeah. that, that should protect you from certain spoilers. And like for Jeopardy, that is day long. I think my friend broke the social contract. Oh, for sure. Definitely. Oh, for sure. And then I broke it way worse. Like I did it yeah, out, of spite. It, it, out of spite and like it was so juvenile. I apologized, but it was so bad. I don't know. That's an ugliness that you have inside of you. I'm a very nice, kind mm-hmm. and empathetic person. Yeah. But, you know, somehow the Jeopardy just brought out this secret evil in me. What if the spoiler actually brought out the good in you? And tell me more, because I'd love to find a way to that. So like everything else, spoilers have been researched quite a bit. Mm-hmm. How do they work? And more importantly, Stephen, how do they make you feel? So, you know, the idea would be that everyone experiences massive amounts of rage like you did when someone spoils something that you care very much about. Mm-hmm. These researchers out of University of California, San Diego, Jonathan Levitt and Nicholas Christenfeld say, well, it may not be that. In fact, you may be happier to have a story spoiled. They published a paper in 2011 in the Association for Psychological Science called Story Spoilers Don't Spoil Stories. All right, well, thanks for bringing this up because I read the thing too. You're welcome. <laughs> Just very Suddenly we're very about our manners. Um, yeah. yeah, no, it's really interesting because the study finds that if you know the ending of a story, it actually makes it easier to enjoy the twists and turns and sort of the overall structure of that story, knowing where it ends up, right? And so you're sort of able to... Um, appreciate the language and the drama and what what's happening with the characters because you're not spending that mental energy kind of problem solving and figuring out how one twist and one turn in the narrative will lead to some sort of unforeseen end. On the one hand, it's totally counterintuitive because you think, I get so mad when someone spoils a thing. Mm-hmm. But then think about any movie that you've seen the first time and you get to the ending of it. And you go, okay, and maybe it matches your expectation of how it's going to be, or maybe it doesn't. But then you go back and you watch it a second or a third or a fourth time, and you appreciate and like it more, even though, you know, in theory, you should like it less. I think of The Big Lebowski, and basically I think most Coen Brothers movies, where I go in with this expectation it's going to go this certain way. And The Big Lebowski is the example that I most identify with, because you think it's going to be a noir at the end. Lebowski is going to walk away with the money and he's going to improve his life. And then he doesn't. Yeah. Spoiler alert. Oops. Um, that, that's We're definitely past the uh, statute of limitations on like getting in trouble for <laughs> spoiling right. the big Lebowski. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. So um, watching the movie spoils for me my preconceived notion of what the movie was going to be. Yeah. Right. The actual movie is a spoiler for you know, my conception of it. Yeah. Um, So then I go back and I watch it and I'm sort of disappointed. And then I go back and I watch it a second time or a third time. And all of the things that are really enjoyable, all the details of in the moment and the characterization and the foreshadowing and all that stuff, you start to appreciate it more because you know the shape of the whole. Yeah. You know, it's all now circumscribed. So you can sort of spend more time in that space. It's kind of like obliterates the idea of the narrative, right? Like the, the linear, like, beginning, middle, and end is not really as important as spending time kind of 
floating around yeah. in space. Maybe I'm just also a bit shallow because I almost, as a rule, don't rewatch movies. I do so as little as possible. And I think it's because I see it as, shucks, I only got so much time in the day. I, w- I need to watch a new narrative. I need to ha- have a new thing under my belt because I feel like, oh, I haven't watched enough film. If I'm going to be spending two and a half hours here after work, it better be enriching me in some new and broader avenue, right? Um, so I, I do feel that way for the most part. So you're more wide and shallow more, rather than narrow and deep. Yeah, exactly. Like you. Yeah. Um, I'm more narrow and deep, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. You've read all the magazines. Uh, yes. And I've read three books yeah. a lot. <laughs> I guess that's what you're saying. But a lot, a lot of times. But hey, yeah, a lot of times. Yeah. No, um... Let's actually get back to some of the points of this story, because I think that um, the researchers pick out some very interesting reasons why people potentially like stories more with spoilers. And so, first of all, you have to understand what the experiment consisted of. And that's where these researchers took groups of people and they had several different types of stories and they would before um, having the subjects read the story, they would offer that story's end. They would essentially let people know generally how the story was going to end up. Then they would have people read the stories, you know, a control group. Some some would get the spoiler, some wouldn't. And they found that people enjoyed stories more when they received that spoiler before reading the story, basically. Right. So right. Um, that, that was like very much quantifiable. That was the scientific fact that people, when they got the spoiler, they reported enjoying it more. So then they thought, why? And there are two reasons why these researchers uh, believe that this is the case. The first one has to do with perceptual fluency, which essentially means that what we were saying earlier, that once you have this spoiler at the end, uh, it's easier to anticipate the upcoming events in a story and therefore be able to kind of spend more time comprehending the other cool bits of the writing. Uh, The other one has to do with uh, pleasurable tension, which is um, where basically you get this sort of rush of knowing about an upcoming story twist. Um, Now, another interesting part about this is that it has to do with when and how the spoiler is provided to the subject, right? So when it is done so in a more general way before the story by the researcher, it has this effect. However, when it's done either very specifically or it's done specifically within the text, it does not produce that same effect in the reader. Right. So like if you tuck the spoiler into the text itself, where the character in the story says, oh, and by the way, I'm going to end up dead in the end of this thing. Readers don't like that. But if there was some kind of extra textual thing that, that, you know, the researcher came in and said, let me tell you how this thing's going to end. Yeah. It was sort of like they were relieved from having to worry about that in a way that they maybe didn't even perceive. Totally. Like, okay, now I know that this is how it ends. I can appreciate this character more now. Yeah. Knowing that I'm going to lose them soon. Yep. And you know what? I can backtrack a little bit. Um, it's not like I don't rewatch things. I rewatch certain sitcoms over and over again. I call it taking a mind bath. And uh, my <laughs> my favorite... <laughs> see, that's what I'm doing when you're reading books. I'm just like watching Arrested Development for the 20,000th yeah. time. My favorite oh. show of all time, sitcom at least, is Arrested Development. I've seen the whole arc of everything from 
really actually more seasons one through three over and over and over and over again. And it is fun because those writers are so smart that they do plant all of these things in throughout that narrative that lead to the end that you can definitely pull out those Easter eggs like so much more easily having once you know the end. So it's not like I am 100% never going to rewatch a movie. It's more my own insecurity <laughs> that I haven't watched and experienced enough art that I only have so many hours in the day that prevents me from doing so. But um, I, I do understand what the research says. And I do, for the most part, I guess I'm on board with it. I believe in it. And also, who am I to be on board with the science or not? Right. It's like they proved it scientifically. So sure. there you go. Yeah. I think that makes sense. And I think Arrested Development's a great example of it because uh, the twists and turns of plot are not nearly as enjoyable as spending time in those scenes mm -hmm. with all of the in-jokes and all of the verbal sparring and, and all the just crazy Easter eggs, like you said. And weirdly, I think Mad Men is kind of the same thing. Like, Oh, no, don't I can do tell it. You how, just, I no, can tell no, you how stop. it ended. No, no. It, it do, wouldn't matter. Do not do this. It wouldn't matter, but it has something to Stop do it. No, with la, la, a new age, la, 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 a new no. age resort Shut the uh, hell on up. the Pacific Coast. Shut up. <laughs> it doesn't oh matter. My, it doesn't you matter. are freaking... It's the journey, not the destination, Stephen. <laughs> I don't want to do this here. <laughs> this is real, guys. We're doing this. This is We're real drama this. tension. I'm, okay. I, I'm, I'm, yeah. I'm kind of mad at you. It's fine. Is it pleasurable tension? Uh, no, it's the type of rage that I now want to pass on to the people that I love most. It's that kind of rage. And the reason I said pleasurable tension, Stephen, yeah. is because that's the other thing that is produced in the person for whom the story is spoiled, mm -hmm. according to the study, where, you know, they say one version is you have less of a cognitive burden trying to, like, anticipate what's going to happen in the story. And yeah. the other is this pleasurable tension idea, which is, like, if you're informed about it in advance, it increases your excitement. So even though you know the ending is going to come and it's going to be this certain way, sort of knowing about it makes it really exciting. Yeah. I guess kind of like a roller coaster. Like, you know, at the top of this hill, it's going to drop off suddenly. Yeah. And you get excited about that thing rather than like, oh, man, I can see the end of the roller coaster. What a piece of shit. And, and one thing I pulled, I pulled out of the... The, that, that detail about the difference between a researcher telling the person the spoiler versus the spoiler happening in line is if it also like ignites this sort of sense of like privileged information that we all like, right? To feel like you kind of know this secret um, going into something. I wonder if there's like something deep there that also in increases the pleasure of yeah. knowing. It's interesting that this sort of idea of knowing the end allows you to more leisurely frolic throughout the narrative of the story, I think holds true across the board. So I find this uh, study enlightening, interesting, and accurate. I think that's a wonderful thought, Stephen. One of the researchers, Kristen Feld, said, quote, if you're driving up Highway 1 through Big Sur and you know the road really well, you can now peek around and admire the view, the otters frolicking in the surf. Mm-hmm. Big Sur is also where oh, shut Mad the, Men shut, ends. Oh, stop it. I know. And you know what? I saw a picture of this. Oh, that same text thread. One of my friends was mm -hmm. like, does anybody have a, a, a hookup at Esalen? This is on the same thread that spoiled Jeopardy for me too, actually. Okay. And then it was like, it was a picture of John Hamm meditating at Esalen. So I did know that you didn't spoil that for me. And I'm, I'm taking my mic and I'm going home. Oh, no. <laughs> you are home. And no! it'll be a very short trip. Um, so you like to watch Arrested Development over and over again. Love it. I like to watch Big Lebowski. Okay. And I like to read my three books over and Your over three again. Books. So this study was covered in Psychology Today, and the writer for that article said, 
people enjoy rewatching their favorite shows and films, right? She says, quote, personally, I love revisiting videos of yoga classes. The more familiar I am with a particular yoga sequence, the easier it is for me to let go. Decreasing the cognitive challenge that comes from paying attention to the teacher's cues helps me to de-stress and enjoy the movement even more. Yeah, that's, that's kind of like that reading instruction thing I was saying earlier, too, right? Providing all these supports and interventions is all just about, like, propping up the action, whether it's decoding words on a page or trying to work through a narrative on the screen or trying to follow along the yoga teacher's instructions. It's all about providing these supports so that your mind just has more energy to focus on you know, the process itself. And to enjoy it. Yeah. And I would suggest that there is a dark side to that, right? Hmm. So the idea of letting go and being in the moment and just accepting what's going on sounds kind of nice and zen and like the sort of thing you would do at, oh, I don't know, a place like SLM. Okay, in, enough. Yeah. All okay. right, I did, uh, okay. But it, it also... <laughs> But creating an uncomplicated narrative could also be seen as a form of control, yeah. right? As we saw with a story that was really interesting that came out earlier this week about the movie Fight Club. Well, you know what? A funny true story. Chuck Palahniuk had like this like book signing event or something in San Francisco, like whatever, like six or seven years ago. And going to go meet him, I was like, well, this will be cool. I went to CVS and I bought a bar of soap. Oh, no. And I had him sign a bar of soap. Oh, Stephen. Yeah. I mean, he loved that. No, he looked at me with such disdain. He was just like, ugh, God, this is stupid. And then he signed it. Another bar of soap. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) But I remember his look. I thought he was going to think it was like clever and cool and some shit like that. It was not. It was not cool. No. So what did China do with Fight Club? (laughs) Is what that makes me think of. Did you see this article that came out of Vice uh, earlier yes. this week? Oh, my God. It's insane. It's yeah. insane. Essentially, long story short, the ending of Fight Club is re-edited in the Chinese release. So Fight Club yeah. is a story about fighting authority, overcoming the authority that exists even within your own head, and ultimately ends, the original version ends with them blowing up all of these buildings. The story is set in Delaware, so the presumption is yeah. that these are all credit card companies mm-hmm. and everyone's credit is going to be wiped and they're all going to be set free. So that's the end of the movie. The Pixies comes up. Protagonists are hand in hand. You see the buildings come down. The Chinese version gets right up to that point. Yeah. And then screen goes black and the explosion, all that stuff is gone. So you instead just see a screen come up with the text that reads, quote, Through the clue provided by Tyler, the police rapidly figured out the whole plan and arrested all criminals, Stephen, successfully preventing the bomb from exploding. After the trial, Tyler was sent to lunatic asylum, receiving psychological treatment. He was discharged from the hospital in 2012. <laughs> the end, right? <laughs> Like, this is so ridiculous. You know why also? Because the Simpsons did it. When Remember Poochie? Oh, yeah. Itchy and Scratchy and Poochie. So at the very end of... Um, uh, <laughs> they just like had to like kill him off really quickly. And instead of having this like cool line of Homer, because Homer was voicing Poochie, there was just a note that read on the screen that said, Poochie died on his way back to his home planet. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yeah. <laughs> It takes away a little something. It's a different kind of spoiler 
It's when, a little bit of a different film. I would say that yeah. they kind of changed the texture of the message of the movie, don't you think? Absolutely. And the Vice article, the author, Viola Joe, goes on to say that this is not uncommon, right? That that you see movies plodding along as they do, and then right at the climactic moment, yeah. the end is replaced with a screen that essentially celebrates the state and yeah. law and order, and so criminals are punished, and the state's authority is reasserted, and everyone's happy about that. And yeah. that's just sort of how Western media is sometimes treated. Spoiler alert, the state always wins. The state always wins. And so yeah. that, to me, is what makes this seem like the dark side to the idea of spoilers, right? Like, on the uh, one hand, if you know all the yoga moves, yeah, you can, like, really lean into it. You don't have to think about it or challenge it or whatever. So, too, if all of the movies, all of the shows, all of the books always end the same, where the yeah. state reasserts its dominance, then you also, in theory, sort of could potentially become complacent to what's going on. Because it's like, well, we know that at the end of the day, the state always wins. Yeah. If we're basing this kind of idea on the research from University of California, San Diego, right? Where it's like the knowing the spoiler allows you to sort of relax and appreciate different sorts of um, elements of a narrative, but you kind of know where it's going. Mm -hmm. You're kind of like morphing your thinking towards that end the whole time. So if you know, after watching many movies that kind of always end in this similar outcome, you kind of, you relax into that thinking and you sort of, yeah, we enjoy the story because we all know at the end there's this safe place that ends where, you know, the state is all powerful and all knowing. So it like, it's like this weird, almost like mind control. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, if all stories end with this one ending, Mm -hmm. then you do kind of... Or versions of that one ending. Yeah, right? riffs like, on. You know, Criminals are always punished. The idea of stepping out of line, you never get away with it. That's yeah. the other thing. Like, dissent is always going to be caught, and yeah. the perpetrators are always going to be punished. And, you know, this sort of state authority is going to be then reasserted. Yeah. And, yeah. yeah, and I think that's obviously a way for Chinese Communist Party to exert social control. Totally. I mean, you know, in the article, uh, she also points out that in that movie Lord of War uh, where the arms dealer ends up like basically getting away with it and returning to crime the end of that movie is also replaced by a black screen with white text that says Yuri Olav confessed all the crimes officially charged against him in court and was sentenced to life imprisonment in the end God. like this is very real and it shows you how unimaginably powerful stories can be then all of the different censorship measures uh, that China takes start to make a little bit more sense if we understand how powerful ideas themselves are. Absolutely. But it also, from the outside, looks really ridiculous. Like the, yeah. the links they have to go to to kind of conform all of these stories to make them work. And you sort of see these things bubble up. And they show up in the news all the time. Like one of the big ones was when America's favorite actor slash peacemaker, John Cena, mm -hmm. who uh, speaks Mandarin, yeah. Was doing a press tour for a movie, Fast and Furious 7, and said, Taiwan is a country. And then there was a huge uproar. And that's all he said. He didn't even say Taiwan is a country. He said, quote, Taiwan is the first country to watch Fast and Furious 9. Like a throwaway line in an interview. Yeah. And then... He got in big, big trouble. He did. 
Um, yeah, so after that happened, he posted this video message on Weibo, the Chinese social media network. Where, by the way, he has 600,000 followers, apologizing so much. It was like he was this like on his knees apology. Quote, I must say right now, it's very, 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 very important. Senna said, I love and respect China and Chinese people. I'm very, very sorry for my mistake. Right. And he's not saying exactly what he said, but it, it, it was very clear what he meant. And this isn't just anybody. This is John Cena. This is the guy who is like the archetype of the American hero. You can set your watch to that haircut kind of guy, like a shot in a beer <laughs> kind of yeah. heartland dude. Yeah. And it was, it was crazy. And why? Well the money right it was because the chinese market is so huge that i'm sure he was just forced to do this by the powers that be right yeah exactly so you see the narrative reasserting itself and like forcing him into conformity and we think how strange that china is doing that but this week alone we saw all kind of versions of this idea of story manipulation happening right here Stephen, in these united states it happened on the left. So there was a story that came out in The Guardian about mm-hmm. how the newsletter app Substack is making millions of dollars from writers who are vaccine skeptics or just outright anti-vax. And that created mm-hmm. a whole kerfuffle on the left. Yeah. Chelsea Clinton said, yeah. look at this, tisk tisk tisk. It was a big deal. And then also the other big thing was Neil Young said to Spotify, if you don't pull Joe Rogan, who is promoting anti-vax, I'm going to take my whole catalog away. Spotify said, no way. And Neil Young crazy horsed his way. Yeah, sure. You could also say uh, Neil Young left them. Helpless, 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 helpless. Yeah. Weirdly, that's 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 That was pitch perfect. Yeah, that's like a better version of his voice than he himself actually. <laughs> hey, don't hate on Neil. Not on oh. this. Not on oh, this. Oh, he's program. a delight. Come on. But okay, so he's got a have... heart of gold. Oh boy, Ooh. I think that's a Neil Young reference. Woo! So you have this um, story engineering going on on the left, where voices that are speaking out against vaccines or against vaccine mandates are all kind of you know there's there's an attempt to shut those down now. How do I feel about vaccines? I think it's great. How do I feel about these forces aligning against every dissenting voice? I think that there is a problematic element to that, right? That, you know, uh, should people be allowed to spread terrible ideas? Is it the job of private companies to make sure that that stuff is being cleaned up? This is a whole other episode. Totally. But I would say, uh, at the very least... It's something to keep an eye on and to think this is a species of uh, conversation control that is eh, something we should pay attention to. Yeah, it gets dicey. I mean, I think, you know, if we were to entertain this even just for a moment, I mean, I do think that there's like a difference. I I think it always comes down to like the idea of can certain communication and stuff like that, like actively hurt somebody. Right. Like, I mean, if you Mm -hmm. think about the extent to which people have been pretty brainwashed um, on both sides, but very much so by the right to, like, eschew the vaccines for all of these different reasons, none of which are based on fact or science. I think that does become problematic because people people die. 
Absolutely. But the solution to that is, okay, we're going to go ferret out everybody who dissents from that. And then where do you draw that line, right? Yeah. Like there are legitimate questions to be asked about safety and so on. And we've seen examples of people who are not crazy anti-vax people who have been, you know, deplatformed from YouTube for, for sure. you know, asking questions that are, again, that are not unreasonable questions about, you know, safety and efficacy. It's just that things are so polarized that there's a real fear for that reason that information is dangerous and we need to figure out a way to regulate that. I mean, I think that's what the conversation is about. And, you know, I think there are going to be many episodes that we have in the future in which we parse some of that stuff. Certainly. And I mean, again, it all points back to the power of a story is something that I think we're all realizing more and more in 2022. Right. The idea, too, of what's dangerous versus what promotes a good society. So on the left, you have this very high profile uh, eruption of outrage against these anti-vax things. And on the right, also this week, you have a Tennessee school board that banned the Pulitzer Prize-winning graphic novel Mouse by Art Spiegelman, a work of amazing genius, in which all the Jews are depicted as mice, all the Germans are depicted as cats, and then, I don't know, other characters are pigs and stuff. But whatever the case, the complaint was that this graphic novel, which depicts the horrors of the Holocaust, concentration camps, and so on, um, says the word damn and has some pictures of nudity. It's, yeah, it's just totally, it's ridiculous. Not only that, uh, this news came out during the week that uh, contains uh, International Holocaust Remembrance Day, which is Thursday, January 27th. And, uh, you know, it, it's funny that I was talking about teaching earlier, and um, I also used to teach this book to kids with disabilities because the graphic novel format was a really, really powerful tool to help wow. convey this really important message that maybe could be lost for students who are having trouble reading, right? So by having this these visceral images and this very accessible sort of mode of storytelling, and there's all sorts of interesting stuff about how graphic novels work uh, in terms of like getting ideas across and the interesting cognitive things that happen. There's a wonderful book that's actually written in graphic novel form by Scott McCloud called Understanding Comics uh, that goes over some of the specific reasons why a graphic novel is this really awesome tool to teach people something. So people could probably argue this either way. So I think this is terrible for a number of different reasons, but like the fact that this is a graphic novel that has this unique ability to tell this important story to people who may have otherwise not been able to fully grasp and comprehend it. I think that makes this bit of censorship like all that more uh, awful. And like, it it just really goes to show the depths to which people are willing to go to control a narrative, right? In order to sort of serve their own political or ideological leanings. Yeah, I think there's a interesting weakness that we have as humans, where we need stories to guide us in life and to give us direction. And so there is obviously a lot of political power in being able to control that. Mm -hmm. Um, And we know that, and that is sort of this recurring theme. And also, like, who controls the levers of narrative, right? Like, there's there's social media now where more people can express themselves. And so it's not just this monolithic uh, structure. Yeah. That is that is running that stuff. So here we keep saying over and over again the power of narrative to you know shape our reality, um, which we've sort of come a long way. You know, we got into the episode today talking about spoilers, yeah, and we're going to kind of come back around to that. I, I think 
the idea of knowing how things are going to go, we see has been empowering in some ways and kind of constricting in others. So, Stephen, you remember the study we were talking about, about spoilers and so on? Mm-hmm. One of the authors, Nicholas Christenfeld, had this really interesting thing he said. The plot is in some ways like a coat hanger displaying a garment. If it's just a crumpled heap of fabric on the floor, you couldn't admire the garment. A plot is just the structure that lets you do the interesting narrative components. Maybe even knowing the ending is useful because it allows you to focus on these other parts or to understand how it's unfolding. Yeah. So there again, the idea of knowing how things turn out might be a thing that liberates us. In a way, for sure. Yeah. I, I mean, I'm never going to forgive you about this freaking John Hamm and Esalen thing, but mm-hmm. let's yeah, just... You got to know these things. I don't. The idea of that ending, Stephen, is Shut about up, no, no, being at no. peace. It's about being at peace with your circumstances. Yeah. Um, and particularly one fairly significant circumstance, which I think of as the ultimate spoiler. Yeah. And which is. you think of as death itself. Yes, it is death. Yeah. Death is the ultimate spoiler. And this comes up a lot in so many different um schools of thought right on this show back when we reviewed don't look up i also talked about martin heidegger and how he deeply believed that in order to truly begin living an authentic life you have to come face to face with the reality of your own death he's not the only one who's come to this realization absolutely yeah thinking about death as a spoiler and how we reckon with knowing that we're going to die led me down a fairly weird rabbit hole as Mm -hmm. sometimes happens and i landed on this article in Eon by a professor of philosophy named James Bailey. And he says, you know, there's this existential shock that comes whenever you realize that you're going to die, whether it's like as a young person or when you have a terminal disease or whatever it is. And he says, quote, existential shock emerges from a radical alteration of the inside view where the primal confusion lifts so that the person directly experiences herself as insubstantial, end quote. Okay. And then he gets into a whole thing about how the self is really just an illusion and that this is something that Buddhists say and that this is something that David Hume talked about. The idea that there's no real self, that we're just a concatenation of events and feelings and things, but there's no real there there. And so the idea of thinking of death as the end of the story and being freaked out about it is wrong in a certain way. We're thinking about it wrong. And so to be removed from the fear of death is to be able to appreciate all the bits and bobs, all the jokes, all of the interesting wrinkles in the arrested development that is Mm. this world, our world. I'm so with that, Brandon. And that's why we're doing this thing here. I feel that. And um, I think another important element to this understanding death to be the greatest spoiler of all has to do with um, by by realizing the reality of death, you also it puts you in the moment because you understand that your time here is finite. So it, it forces you to be at one with yourself in this story that is our lives because it, it reminds you that it is just this story that is going to end. It's not going to go on forever. So, um, you know, it's about driving down the one and kind of looking over to the coast and seeing those otters, right? It, it forces you into your body and into yourself in, in this way that I don't think many other things do. I like that. I think that's a good way to begin to end this episode. Mm-hmm. Uh, James Bailey, the professor, he says, quote, the notion of a self is merely a convenient device for referring to a causally linked network of mental states rather than yeah. something distinct from them, which mm. is 
you know, which is kind of the same thing as stories, right? And I think that you, Stephen, and I have to just sort of learn to appreciate what we got. Yeah. Independent of our obviously massive and crushing frustration <laughs> at who lost at Jeopardy <laughs> so bad. or how Fight Club ended or yeah. didn't end. Yeah. Or, you know, the fate of a single word chosen kind of randomly for a game that has swallowed up the heart and soul of America. Yeah. Don't sweat the small day. stuff. Right. Don't sweat the small stuff. That's yeah. what John Hamm would say. No. From his Where? meditative no. note. <laughs> At the end of history. No, no, I'm taking off the microphone. No, I'm taking off. No, I'm taking off the. ah. Okay, Stephen. uh, (laughs) I'm taking off my headphones. I will spare you (laughs) the details. Uh, Okay. But I will say that I will spoil the ending by saying that my name is Brandon R. Reynolds. And I am Stephen Jackson. And this has been Journos. See you next time. Journos is produced by Heather Eagle Ears Wilson. (laughs) 